This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 122, Blending. I am Hal Hammonds and I am a Citizen of Heaven and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. If you noticed that we discussed men and women, respectively, over the last two episodes, you may already have an incorrect idea of what the blending episode is all about. So let me be clear. Things God made to be distinct will remain distinct, despite our best efforts. But sometimes the whole becomes more than merely the sum of its parts. That's true with Jews and Gentiles in the church, fact and fiction in books, different singing parts in a chorus, and even the occasional board game mashup. Let's start with what I've been preaching. We read in Galatians 3, verses 26 and following, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. There is a lot of discussion about what the role of men is in the church, what the role of women is in the church. We've already discussed this over the last couple of weeks, but I want to back up a little bit and look at this idea of there is neither Jew nor Greek, or if you prefer, there is neither bond nor free. The idea that Jesus comes into the world and he comes into the church, and it's not just that he is leveling the playing field for men and women, he is leveling the playing field for all of us. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And in most of these other situations, I think we understand what that means, and we don't get carried away with ourselves. And there's no need for us to get carried away with regard to men and women either. Jesus is not saying there is no such thing as Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. That's silly. Of course there are. The New Testament refers to them frequently. We wouldn't need the New Testament to refer to them at all. We know that this is the case. There are Jews, there are Greeks, just like there are slaves and freemen in the New Testament system, and there are men and women. What he's saying is that those cultural distinctions with regard to Jews and Gentiles don't matter anymore. At least they don't carry the day. The commonality that we have in Jesus is far more important than the distinction that exists or that is perceived to exist between these cultural groups. And the same thing could be said today for Republicans and Democrats or rich people and poor people or suburbanites and urbanites or whatever distinction you want to make or that culture may want to make. Those things do exist. We don't deny that they exist. But in Jesus, the importance of such things is dramatically diminished. There's not nearly as much of an emphasis on such matters as the commonality that we share in Jesus Christ. Paul phrases it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 22 and 23, to the weak I became weak so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul says, this is my role, not to be the best Jew I can be or the best Gentile that I could be. It's not to take a stand for the law or against the law. It's to be a Christian. And that may mean different things in different circumstances, and I'm okay with that, because it's more important for me to be a Christian than to be anything else, including his national heritage in this particular situation. These cultural distinctions do perpetuate themselves, certainly. We don't ignore that, but they don't dominate our lives like they did at one point, like they do for our neighbors. The same thing is true for social distinctions that exist. 
There are still rich people and poor people. There are still people who prosper and people who do not. We're told in James chapter 1 and verse number 9 and following, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flower and grass, he will pass away. The point is not that rich people have to become poor people or poor people have to become or get to become rich people. The point is that we rejoice in the idea that we are all one in Christ Jesus. Rich people get to act like they are poor because they are on a level with those who are poor. Poor people get to act like they are on a level with rich people because as far as Jesus is concerned, such is the case. And there are some situations where that leveling might actually, in a literal financial sense, take place, but that is not the main point that he's getting at here. He's not saying that it's a sin to be rich or that it's a sin to be poor or that it is inherently noble to be either one. He's saying that whatever distinction the culture may see doesn't matter anymore, not nearly as much as once it did. And the same thing is true for men and women. If we haven't already emphasized this point enough, let's touch on it again. The idea that distinctions exist between men and women in society to a certain extent, certainly in some societies, certainly in past societies, that does exist, that continues to exist. That's neither good nor bad with regard to the church. The important thing is that when men and women come together in the body of Christ, each one is equally valuable. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 7, in the passage that we referred to in a previous context, and we emphasized almost exclusively the idea of husbands being understanding, it goes on to say that she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of Christ so that your prayers may not be hindered. She is a fellow heir of the gospel, a fellow heir of grace. We are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the miracle that exists in the church. We still function as individuals in the world and in the church. But when we blend together as the body of Christ, we become more than the sum of our parts because we're all pursuing the glory of Jesus instead of the glory of any individual part of the body. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. One of the comics that I used to really follow when I was coming up as a teenager was the What If series in Marvel Comics. What if Captain America had run for president? What if Bruce Banner cured his Hulk powers? A different timeline, a different way of looking at things. What might have happened if things had gone differently? I always found that fascinating. Take a left turn instead of a right turn, and what are you going to find? That's what some historical fiction is all about, including and particularly the book that I was focusing on this week, The Impeachment of Abraham Lincoln by Stephen L. Carter. It's emphasized here, a novel in larger print than normal, because Abraham Lincoln was not impeached. Of course, his successor, Andrew Johnson, was impeached after Lincoln's assassination. The idea of the book is that Lincoln survives the assassination attempt and goes on to try to reconstruct the nation after a more generous and conciliatory fashion. And that annoys the people in his own party and alienates the Republicans in Congress and winds up getting himself impeached for one thing or another. And if you want to take liberties with history for your own amusement in an obviously fictional setting, that's fine because it is obviously fictional. Pretty much everybody agrees Abraham Lincoln was in fact assassinated, that he did in fact die. And so therefore any book that describes the life of Lincoln past April 15, 1865 is by necessity made up. And we accept that and we embrace that and we play along. 
Biblical fiction is somewhat different. At least it tends very strongly to be different. It's not a what-if kind of situation. It is more of a filling in of the blanks. Tell me more about the story of Ruth. Tell me more about the story of Esther. Tell me more about the story of Sarah. We like filling in the blanks. We like imagining what kind of a person Ruth may have been, what moved her to do what she did. We have a certain amount, really, when you look at it, a very limited amount of information that is inspired by God. And our imagination takes hold of this. I wonder what her motivation was. I wonder if she really loved her first husband. I wonder what that night in the threshing floor of Boaz was really all about. We can allow ourselves to get really carried away with ourselves, and maybe that's not such a horrible thing. It becomes a horrible thing, though, when we lose track of what the Bible is actually saying and what we are imagining is unsaid by the Bible, but nevertheless real. It's called relating to the characters, and it's almost always seen as a positive thing. I can really relate to Job. I can really relate to Peter. I can really relate to Ruth or Esther. And usually what we mean by that is there's something about that character that I connect to. I imagine myself in their position. And it's not too much of a reach to say being in that person's position, their motivation to do what they did was my motivation to do what I do. And before too long, we are seeing ourselves in the spot of this Bible character, and we're starting to blur the lines somewhat about what actually happened and what we think probably happened in our own preconceived notions, our own cultural upbringing, our own experience. We start coloring outside the lines, if you will. We need to be cautious when we do that. I understand that relating to Bible characters helps us connect and helps us practicalize Bible teachings and Bible examples, and that's not all bad by any means. But the Bible is not about us, not in the real sense of the word. These historical narratives that we have in Old and New Testament times, they're about Bible characters, people who died thousands of years ago. And we may understand their point of view or think that we do, but that doesn't mean that their story is our story. There is a difference there, and that's especially important for us to understand when the story narrative is sparse when we don't know exactly what Esther's motivation was to go become queen of the Persian Empire, when we don't know what the mentality of Sarah was when she's promised to have a child in her 90s, other than she thinks it's a laughing matter, at least at one point. We need to be very cautious about such things. In fact, I have seen people take positions that were diametrically opposed to the Bible narrative that could be proved wrong easily from the text because they connected so strongly with the difficulties and hardships and challenges that these people went through, and they want to justify themselves, and so they wind up justifying the Bible characters as well. We need to be very cautious about doing those kind of things. But if we keep relating to the characters and we allow that to guide our Bible study more than is intended, before too long we stop listening to God entirely. We start seeing the Bible as a rationalization for the choices that we have already made. This cloud of witnesses that is given to us in the text that Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 refers to, that ceases to mean anything to us when they are simply one example after another of why it's okay for me to be like I am. These are given to us for our instruction, for our learning. First Corinthians chapter 10 verse 6 tells us that these are given to us as examples that we may learn. It's not about finding examples of how we think. It's not about turning to a page in the Bible and say, you see what Job is going through? You see what Abraham is going through? That's what's in my mind right now. That may be relevant. That make you feel better and maybe help explain your situation a little bit. But 
Really, it's the opposite of what the Bible is supposed to be doing. The Bible is supposed to be showing us what God approves, what God doesn't approve. And that means taking ourselves out of the situation, withdrawing ourselves from the narrative, and allowing the Bible to speak for itself. We have to see the Bible characters for who they are if we are going to learn from them. Now, there are a lot of characters in the Bible, and some of them are very relatable. And it may seem on the surface, at least, that their challenges or their blessings or their curses or what have you are very similar to your own. And if you're able to connect to that and derive a Bible lesson for your life, then by all means do that. That's a big part of what Bible examples are all about. But let's not make the mistake of blurring the lines between what actually happens in the Bible and what we imagine is going on behind the scenes, between the lines, if you will, of the Bible. If you choose to read a fictionalized narrative of the life of Ruth or the life of Esther or Sarah or whoever, do it with your Bible open. Remember what is actually in the Bible story and what we just perhaps imagine the Bible story to be. Losing that distinction, before too long we lose the Bible narrative entirely. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. Recently at Lakewoods Drive, we had a congregational singing, invited our friends and neighbors and brethren from the area to come. It was a packed house. It was a a marvelous event. There is very little that inspires me, and I'm not speaking just for myself here, so much as the uniting of brothers and sisters in Christ, hearing voices go up before the throne of God, hearing these voices reach out to brothers and sisters in Christ, encouraging one another, teaching one another, collectively praising God, reminding ourselves that we are a body of believers. We are one, as the great hymn written by my friend Matt Basford tells us, which we sang that Saturday. We are one. We become one. We deliberately become one. And more to the point, even Jesus makes us one. This plays on a scientific principle that has been established over the last however many years we've been studying these kind of things, that there is an innate tendency for human voices to join together. The more accomplished you are as a singer, the more likely this is going to happen, but it really doesn't matter all that much. We have a tendency to connect with one another. We sing lyrics at the same pace. We sing together. We sing on the same tone. Sometimes I will lead a song, for instance, a hymn in worship, and it's pitched too high, and my voice is not as strong as it was back in my 20s, and perhaps it's in the key of C, for instance. And it gets up to one of those high Fs a few times in the first stanza and a couple times in the chorus, and I can tell my voice is uh, is weakening. But we keep going, we press on forward, and we make it to the end, and don't even realize that we're not in the key of C anymore. I started whittling away at those tones bit by bit, unconsciously, of course, and we're in the key of B flat, maybe, or even A. And as the song leader does that, the congregation follows along, usually without even noticing that we're doing it. It is a compulsion to fit in, to be a company, to be a united voice. The basses and the sopranos and the tenors and the altos all doing their part, finding their way. Even if someone can't read music, if they have a tendency toward harmony, a lot of people are like this, they'll find a note that fits there in that chord, and it sounds wonderful. Again, talent has something to do with that, but genetics has something to do with it too. We are hardwired to blend with one another. 
minds work the same kind of way as voices. We have a very strong tendency to surround ourselves with people like ourselves. We're social beings. We want to be in company with one another. Even the strongest of introverts among us seeks company. We seek fellowship. That's what the Lord's church offers to us. We come together from various parts of the world, various aspects of life, various cultures, and we find Jesus. And in Jesus, we find commonality with one another. This is a good thing, or at least it should be a good thing. It can be a bad thing, though. Sometimes this drive to connect with one another takes us off course. Now, if off course means not singing in the proper key anymore, the music is written in the key of C and we're not singing in the key of C, I would argue that's not that big of a deal. In fact, I would argue it's no big deal at all. It may be a little bit annoying to the people who are really good at singing, the ones who are really, really talented. But I think pretty much everybody would agree it's better for everybody to sing together harmonically in the wrong key than to be singing poorly and out of harmony in the correct key just because the song leader is determined to do it the right way or somebody out in the audience is determined to do it the right way as we may perceive the right way. It's better to be in harmony, certainly, in those situations because whether we can hold a tune properly is not a Bible doctrine, is not a heaven or hell issue. There are heaven and hell issues, though. There are doctrinal points. And again, there is a very strong tendency for us to seek that commonality among brothers and sisters in Christ who we presume to be standing for the truth, and in many aspects, probably most aspects, are standing for the truth. But what do we do when we're not? What do we do when we get off key, off of God's key? What happens if we start to shift, if we start to deviate? Is it better to be similar to one another in error, in harmony, if you will? Or is it better to stand out, to be a discordant note and hold to the truth? That's a difficult question to answer because it's difficult for us to determine what is and is not a doctrinal matter sometimes. What we need to do is understand what the Bible actually teaches, what the difference is between Bible doctrine and my understanding of the application of Bible doctrine. Romans chapter 14, verse 1 famously tells us that we are supposed to be one with one another. We're supposed to be coming together, not for the purpose of passing judgment on one another's opinions. We need to make sure that if someone is a little different, if someone is singing in a way that perhaps we're not quite used to, to extend the metaphor a little bit, it's more important for us to connect to that person and perhaps even sing along in their way than it is for us to correct them and say, no, you're doing it wrong. Let me show you a better way. That's the case when it's a judgment matter. When it's a doctrinal matter, when it is a thus says the Lord matter, it's a very different thing. We're told very specifically when it is a doctrinal matter, Jude verse 3, for instance, that we're supposed to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. If we are standing for God's truth, and again, I emphasize, this is God's truth, not our personal application of God's truth, but what God actually has taught with regard to baptism permission of sins, just as one example. If God has told us in his inspired word, this is what I want, and one of our brethren or a group of our brethren is going in a different way, it is our obligation to be Elijah in a situation like that, to stand out from the crowd, say, I will not go along with this. This is the way that God has asked us to be. I'm not asking you to be with me. I'm asking you to be with Jesus. And if nobody joins in, if no one will sing along with us, then we continue to sing in the way that we are told by the Lord to do. 
We have to be courageous enough to stand apart and fight the urge to blend in, if necessary, because ultimately blending in with Jesus is the only important thing. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. This is what I've been playing. We tried out a new kind of game this year, a game called Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Now, if you are a regular of the podcast, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Castles of Mad King Ludwig, the game based on this crazy Bavarian king. You can go back a couple of weeks and listen to the podcast with regard to my thoughts on that game. It's one of our family's favorites. We love it. A couple of years ago, we ran across a game called Between Two Cities. And Between Two Cities is a completely different game. In Between Two Cities, what you're doing is you are partnering up with the person to your left and the person to your right, and you're building a city on either side of yourself that is shared by two people. If you have four people at the table, you have four cities being built. You're responsible, partially responsible, for each of two cities. And you're judged not by your strongest city, but by your weakest city. So it's necessary for you to do very well in both of your cities, building the the most effective city there. And there are various ways that you can do that. We were drawn to Between Two Cities because it plays a large number of people, and it's relatively easy to learn. And we thought this would be a good family kind of game. Turns out we didn't really like it all that much. It was okay. And when we heard about Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig, we thought maybe this could be the best of both worlds. Maybe this could be a game that plays a lot of people, like Between Two Cities, and it could be a fun game, a really enjoyable game like Castles is. Turns out, as you might expect, we liked Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig somewhat less than the one game and somewhat more than the other game. That's just kind of the way it works. But we went into it with the understanding just because we like the one game doesn't mean we're going to like the game that is partially derived from it, nor does it mean that we're going to dislike it because we didn't especially like the other game that it was derived from. The mashup between the two games is distinct from the others. There is a difference. There is a new creation. We're creating something brand new with its own rules. There may be some similarities here and there, but they are distinct, and it's important to understand the distinction. And I make this point in a spiritual context because sometimes we lose sight of the difference between a bunch of Christians serving Jesus Christ as Christians and a community of believers that has come together for the benefit of one another and to collectively. It seems like it should be just almost necessarily identical. It's not identical. Obviously, there's a great deal of overlap, just like the games in the mashup are going to be very similar, but they are distinct. And it's important for us to understand the distinction. There are rules given to Christians in the New Testament. Jesus speaks to us and tells us how we are supposed to behave. And those rules overlap considerably with the rules that he gives to the church, but they are not the same. And lots of times Christians will make the mistake of assuming that if a rule is given to an individual, for instance, that same rule can be given to a group of individuals in the local church. That doesn't necessarily follow. That's a leap in logic that the Bible does not support. I'll give you an example of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 16, we're told there in the case of widows who are in need in the local church that the individual is supposed to take care of his own widows. If you have a widow in the family, your mother, presumably your grandmother, you take care of that person. The text says specifically, and let not the church be burdened. You have an individual responsibility, like to love your wife, for instance. 
that is not shared by the church. In fact, it is distinct from the obligations of the church. If there can be a difference between the two obligations, we cannot assume that there are no distinctions, because we know that there are distinctions. And so therefore, we allow the individual rules to apply to the individual, such as they are, and we allow the church rules to apply to the church, such as they are. It works the other way too, by the way. The rules that are given to the church don't always apply to the individual. The church is required to appoint elders and deacons, for instance. Titus 1 verse 5 tells us that Paul had commissioned Titus to go into the churches there in Crete and appoint elders. Well, the churches are supposed to have elders. That doesn't mean I need an elder. That doesn't mean I need to find somebody or a group of somebodies to be my own personal elders in my service to Christ. That's an obligation for the church. That's not an obligation for me. I, as part of a local community, hopefully I will have godly men to serve as elders and deacons, and that's a good thing. Because that's my church obligation. That's not my individual obligation. What we need to do is do the best we can in both areas. Play both games, if you will. Be the best individual that you possibly can be. Accept God's rules for your life. Put them to work in your life. Trust in God to guide you along the way and get better as you go. And the same thing goes for local churches. The local church needs to be the best church it possibly can be, which in large measure, obviously, means having the best individuals that you possibly can. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about all these parts of the body coming together and and maximizing the effectiveness of the whole. Clearly, a healthy church is going to be made up of healthy individuals. But it's not just a matter of individuals being good individuals. It's a matter of the church being organized in the way that God has required, pursuing the things that God is asking it to pursue, limiting itself with regard to authority to the things that God has commissioned to the church, which is not everything, by the way. You as an individual have all kinds of obligations out there in the world that the church does not have. What we need to do is serve him effectively, serve him deliberately in both of these areas. In 1 Peter chapter 2, for instance, in verse number 4 and following, Peter writes here, And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for daily priesthood in order to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, we as individuals are coming into this body, into this temple, if you will. We bring the best offering of sacrifice that we can, and in so doing, we help the church offer the best sacrifice that it can. The church is going to magnify the name of Jesus independently of the things of the individual. It could be that a local individual in the church is not doing very well, is in fact fighting against the cause of Christ in his own way. But the church can remain independent of the individual. The church can do what it's supposed to do in that situation, including, in particular, disciplining that individual and helping him see a better way of doing things. The individual responsibility is described in many places, including 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 5 and following the Christian graces that we sometimes talk about. All of these individual characteristics are encouraging us to grow up and make us, as the text says in verse number 8, neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That happens on an individual level. We serve God as a community. We serve God as individuals using the rules that he has given us for both of those things. Yes, they do overlap, but they are independent. We need to make sure that we keep them independent. Understand the one, understand the other. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. 
Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.